What comes of promises made to God? Desperate oaths whispered on the precipice, bargains struck during dark nights of the soul offering eleventh-hour terms. What comes of pledges like this? Guilt, often, the pit of the stomach anvil that accompanies a broken vow. But sometimes, even the most audacious promises made to the divine are kept, lived out by audacious people who trust that their God will somehow make possible all that they've committed. Yahweh remembers people like that. This is a story about prayer and promise, about the value of quiet callings, the potential of brave, inconspicuous faith. And it's a story about how sometimes the surest place to glimpse the emergent rescue of God is in the eyes of a baby. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Amidst the purple light of infant day, the sun crowns, pushed into the sky from the horizon's womb. Dawn crawls west across the rolling terrain, and Hannah squints into the light, wondering if this trip will be any different than the others. It won't. It will be the same length, of course, three days, maybe four. They could make it in two if it weren't for the hills and the children, of course. But the duration of the journey isn't what Hannah's tired of. She glances at Elkanah, her husband. His kind eyes smile back at her, and she returns his smile with one of her own. But hers is tired. The children are fully awake, in spite of the early hour, chatting and bickering, shouting and laughing, squirming and scampering. They flit this way and that amongst the caravan, like a flock of cuckoos, only less organized. From time to time, the children need help, or comfort, or food, or mediation, or a hug, and they call to their mother. When they do, Hannah sighs, and Penina, Elkanah's second wife, the mother of all of his children, responds. She makes a show of it, too, ensuring that Hannah doesn't miss all that Penina is called upon to do and to be as the beloved caregiver of such a sizable brood. If only she wasn't so productive. It's difficult to be loved and needed by so many children. You understand, she says to Hannah, perhaps with a look of feigned camaraderie. Oh, wait. You don't. A snicker, a smug smile, and with any luck, the sick prize Penina is after, a tear falling from Hannah's eye. Hannah had no idea when she got married, but she is infertile, unable to conceive, unable to give birth, 
unable to delight in the sound and the smell and the smiles of a little boy that's part her, part her husband. It's been heartbreaking. And without an heir, Elkanah was forced to take another wife. Being an aristocrat, culture was clear. He needed to ensure that there was a child to whom he could pass on his means, offspring to ensure the continuation of the family. And so Peninnah became Elkanah's second wife and Hannah's whatever they are. Peninnah, it turns out, is as fertile as the Jezreel Valley. She bears a child every time she sneezes, it seems. The only thing more fecund than her womb is her cruel mind. She's constantly churning out new ways to harass Hannah. Jealous of her favored standing with Elkanah, Peninnah badgers Hannah relentlessly about her failures as a wife and a woman. Artfully, though, always just out of Elkanah's view. Thanks to the proximity it requires and Peninnah's insistence on taking full advantage of the opportunities it provides, this annual pilgrimage to worship Yahweh at the tabernacle in Shiloh has become the worst part of Hannah's year. But she goes. After all, Elkanah is her husband, and Yahweh is her God, for better or for worse. Shiloh rises among the hills, the unswerving lines of the tabernacle juxtaposed with the landscape's curves. Terraced vineyards stretch in every direction. If the family is headed to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, it's late summer, early fall, the grapes are round and ripe. If this is a personal pilgrimage, taken every year during, say, the less crowded winter, the vines are bare, dormant, fruitless. Shiloh is an old town, settled thousands of years ago, long before the Hebrews were in this place. But these days, life there revolves around its role as the center of Hebrew worship. The tabernacle was brought here once the Israelites inhabited Canaan, and now the streets bustle with Levites, the scores of women who serve in the tabernacle, and pilgrims, men and women who've come to offer something to Yahweh, and hopefully to receive something as well. In the middle of it all, the house of the Lord. An outer courtyard, 50 feet wide and three times as long, bounded by a wall of linen curtains. Inside the courtyard, the laver, the slaughter tables, the altar, and the structure itself. Humble, really, an acacia wood frame with animal skin panels stretched across it, a linen curtain marking the entrance, embroidered in blue and purple and scarlet. And though a more permanent structure has been built in front of it, something sturdier, a bit grander, the tabernacle is a tent in the end. But it's his tent, his dwelling place. The famed Ark of Yahweh's Covenant is there. The tablets, the manna, and Aaron's rod. Dead wood that came alive at Yahweh's touch and produced fruit.
Hannah breathes in the smell of the sacrifice permeating the air. Fat melts across the roasting meat. Carbohydrates and amino acids wed, giving birth to a thousand chemical compounds, each with their own scent. Together, well, it smells divine. There's something so beautiful, Hannah thinks perhaps, about an animal giving its entire life for Yahweh. The finality, the totality of a sacrifice. A living, breathing creature's very existence devoted to the God who gave it life in the first place. And Yahweh loves it, sees good in it at least. He must, given that he commanded it. Perhaps he sees it not as a loss, but a redemption, a rescue, an ordinary life transformed into flaming worship. Yahweh's sacred creation spared the sentence of a life lived in this fallen world. The perfect, unstretched skin of Hannah's torso is pulled taut as she sighs. If only he would let her offer herself like this, full-bellied, consumed in tribute to the author of human life. Why won't he let her do that? Why would Yahweh withhold something so essential? It could wreck her faith if she let it. Perhaps it has. Perhaps all she's brought to Shiloh are pieces. Hannah's jostled from her thoughts as Elkanah passes her the portion he's cut for her, twice as much as everyone else. His hand on hers. You're not less to me because of any of this. If anything, you're more. He's always loved her so well, or tried to. The task of loving both her and Peninnah has proven difficult. Sure enough, almost as if on cue, Peninnah starts in. Subtly, of course, just out of Elkanah's earshot, but perfectly calibrated to exact pain, embarrassment, shame. Hannah tries to ignore her, tries to think about something else, tries to deny Peninnah the pleasure of her beloved prize. But she cannot do it. Her eyes well with tears. Peninnah grins. But her twisted pleasure is interrupted when Elkanah notices Hannah's food. She hasn't touched it. He looks to her face and sees she's weeping. Elkanah's eyebrows lower in concerned alarm. Hannah, why are you weeping? He asks. If she tries to dismiss his question, he won't have it. Why don't you eat? He waits. Finally, Hannah tells him. It's not that she doesn't want him to know, it's that she doesn't want to keep bothering him with her sadness about this. But he insisted. Why are you downhearted about that? Please don't cry. Elkanah brushes away a tear from her cheek. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? He means well. The tears begin again. Hannah pushes away from the table. Elkanah, Panina, her children, all a blur as she does her best to contain the onslaught of emotion. She has to get out of here. She needs to be alone. No, she needs to talk to him. There is so much to say. If Elkanah reaches for her, Hannah pushes past him and rushes to the tabernacle. 
as she stumbles to the curtain wall surrounding the courtyard and falls to her knees. Inside the courtyard is the altar. Even now, smoke rises from it, the smell of sacrifice breathed in by Yahweh himself. Hannah spreads her arms, turns her palms toward the sky, and weeps. She spends so much time trying not to give Peninnah satisfaction, trying to put on a happy face for Elkanah. It feels good, surely, to sob. Watching his daughter like this, does Yahweh cry as well? As the tears flow, so do words. Words of sorrow, words of confusion, words of disappointment, words of longing. Words that give voice to what? Emotions, thoughts, fears, shame, hope, all erupting like lava, molten, sticky, heavy, burning as it surfaces. She can barely speak. She's so dismantled. The words come out as a trembling, shouted whisper. Hopefully, Yahweh can still hear them. Once the spontaneous tip of the tongue bits spill out, Hannah moves on to something she may have been considering for weeks, months, years even. A last-ditch, I-will-if-you-will kind of proposal. Will he agree? What if he does agree? No, if this is what it takes, so be it. Besides, this somehow feels right. And so, heart-pounding, Hannah whispers a perhaps into the air, alongside a promise. Almighty Yahweh, if you will only look back on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her give her a son, then I will, I will give him to Yahweh for all the days of his life. Hannah promises that if the Lord grants her a son, she will honor her husband's priestly lineage and give that son over to the priesthood. He would be raised entirely away from her by the women serving at the tabernacle, mentored by the high priest. Hannah even goes so far as to promise that her little boy would take the Nazarite vow, holding to a way of life that, among other things, disallows any razor to touch his hair. The Nazarite oath is a promise of utmost devotion, an intentional path of living designed to allow more proximity, more intimacy with Yahweh. All of this, of course, would require Hannah surrendering the child. Is it a strange thing to ask God for something only to give it back to him? When Hannah stands, she hears a voice, an old man, the bells attached to his robe tinkling as he rises slowly from a chair by the doorway of the tabernacle. How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Hannah turns. She hadn't noticed him sitting there. Sunlight glints off gemstones arrayed on the man's chest and off of the golden seal in the front of his turban. 
Eli, the high priest. He must have been watching her the entire time. Why does he think she's... Ah, the tears, the murmured prayer. It must have looked like she was talking to herself. Sadly, it's been quite a while since Eli has witnessed this kind of passion in the presence of Yahweh. So many in Israel have forgotten him, offering lip service at best when they come to Shiloh, if they come to Shiloh. Eli's own sons, in fact, have... Well, that's a long story. Hannah explains herself. No, not so, my lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to Yahweh. Eli's eyebrows rise. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and in grief. She sniffles, wipes her cheek, smiles. And Eli smiles back. With apology in his eyes, the old man says, Go in peace. Before Hannah goes, she takes one last look at the tabernacle, that beautifully simple, mysterious, otherworldly structure that saw the dust of Sinai and the brightness of Moses' shining face, the place of Yahweh's concentrated presence. She breathes deeply and turns to leave, feeling anchored as if the lava of her lament has cooled and become something sturdy, a rock. But there's something else as well, something that seems like it'd be at odds with the solidness she feels, a lightness. Somehow, the two feelings dovetail quite nicely. As Hannah goes, Eli calls after her, And may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. Another deep breath, perhaps, as if inhaling Eli's blessing, claiming the priestly benediction. She walks back to her husband and can't help but notice one more new feeling. Hunger. Is there still some of that enormous portion left? She asks Elkanah. He smiles. She sits, eats. Does he ask her if she's all right? If he does, she looks at her husband with bloodshot, happy eyes and says, Yes. When the sun rises the next morning, its newborn light shines on Hannah as she kneels alongside Elkanah and Peninnah in one last time of worship before leaving Shiloh. Back home, Hannah and Elkanah make love. It's warm and happy and hopeful. As they lie together, Yahweh remembers Hannah. He never forgot her, of course, but he's intentionally calling her to mind. Her pain, her tearful request, faith, and the part he's planned for a long time now that she will play in the destiny of his people. Yahweh opens Hannah's womb. Seed meets egg, and the two become one. Yahweh smiles. When Hannah gives birth, she names her son Samuel, saying, 
through tears, surely, because I asked Yahweh for him. That day in Shiloh, though, Hannah did not only plead, she promised, and she promised no small thing. It's time. Penina gathers the children, makes sure everyone has sandals, skins of water, their favorite toys, a change of clothes, snacks for the road. The annual trip to Shiloh is never easy, but according to Elkanah, it's not negotiable. This pilgrimage is important to him, and it's important that his family goes too. But as they make preparations for the journey, Hannah pulls Elkanah aside. I'm not going to Shiloh this year. Is Hannah afraid of that place, now that it threatens to steal her child away from her? Is she hoping that if she keeps her distance, Yahweh might forget her promise? Possibly. But if those things are inside of her, they're not the only things inside of her. Elkanah waits. Hannah breathes deeply and continues. After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before Yahweh. She looks down at the child in her arms, perhaps, her eyes misty, and he will live there, always. Elkanah smiles, surely. He is proud of her, so proud. She is not ready to act yet. It's not time to act yet, but how beautiful her courageous intent is. Resolve like this, these are seeds that germinate that grow, eventually, into bravery. Bravery that, in turn, gives way to acts of world-changing obedience. Do what seems best to you, he tells her. Stay here until you've weaned him, and may Yahweh complete what he has begun. Elkanah leaves, Penina and the children do too, and Hannah sits down to nurse her beautiful baby boy while she can. Fabric moved aside, tiny lips motioning wordlessly, instinct, enthusiasm. Finally, connection. Samuel's infant eyes roll back in his head, suckled, satisfied, strengthened. Hannah gazes in wonder at her son, her gift. Samuel is walking. He toddles around the house, pointing his miniature finger at one thing and then another, usually something higher than him. So much is higher than him. He's talking now, pronouncing and mispronouncing words, exercising his voice. It's an important voice, one Yahweh will use to shape a nation. Elkanah wrestles with him on the floor. You're too strong, he says, perhaps. Samuel giggles. Hannah loves his laugh, loves the games he plays and the questions he asks, loves the way he splashes during bath time and the way he tries to get dragonflies to land on his nose. Yahweh loves it too. All of this has been a gift, a season Hannah never thought she'd have, tears of joy she never thought she'd shed. And she has stretch marks, evidence of fullness streaking across her torso like lightning, 
tiger-striped grace. But when Samuel lifts a cup to his little mouth, Hannah knows it's time. Time to worship. Three days, maybe four. The rolling terrain stretches out ahead of them like waves on the sea. There's plenty of time to think as Hannah journeys to Shiloh, plenty of opportunities to turn back. But she does not turn back. Hannah arrives at Shiloh with a few large jars of flour, a bottle of wine, and three bowls. If Elkanah tried to convince her that her unorthodox gift would take the place of any traditional sacrifice, especially an overly generous one, Hannah refused. Something has arisen in her over these last years. A certainty. There is no too much when you're giving to him. Samuel has never been this far from home. He oohs and awes at the terrain and ignores it, laughs, cries, dozes, yells, lives the emotionally packed life any toddler lives over the course of a couple of days. Suddenly, Shiloh looms in the distance among the vineyards. Other trips may have taken less time, but never did the journey seem this short. At the house of Yahweh, they slaughter a bull. Hannah breathes in the smell of the sacrifice permeating the air. There's something so beautiful about a creature giving its entire life for Yahweh. Finally, it's time. As the tabernacle's linen curtains move in the wind, the scarlet cord embroidered across them waves, the way Rahab's did that day from her window. Cover this place with your hand, Yahweh. Protect it. Protect him. Hannah looks to Elkanah. He nods. She brings her little boy to Eli, looks into the old man's failing eyes, and says, As you live, my lord, I am the woman that stood by you here, praying to Yahweh. She looks at Samuel, her eyes misty, and back to Eli. I prayed for this boy and Yahweh has given me my petition. Therefore, I have let Yahweh have him. A breath. As long as he lives, he will be dedicated to Yahweh. And with that, Hannah hands over her son. Is it a strange thing to ask God for something, only to give it back to Him. Why would a person do this? Hannah seems to have decided, and it's taken her years to become certain, that the best thing to do with something precious is to entrust it to a God who will do more with her treasure than she ever could. And Yahweh, Yahweh loves this gift of Hannah's, this sacrifice. It is no loss. It is a redemption, a rescue, an ordinary life transformed into flaming worship. 
As Hannah turns to go, what does she feel? Anchored and light. Those who come after her will know this because of what she does before she leaves Shiloh. Hannah sings. An old hymn, perhaps, but changed, amended, personalized. Because some moments call for a new song. As the tears of joy flow, so do words. Words of happiness, words of certainty, words of satisfaction, words of hope. Words that give voice to faith. Hannah lifts her song to the one who gave her Samuel, the one who gave her Elkanah, the one who gave her life itself. My heart rejoices in Yahweh. In the Lord I am lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. She who was barren has borne children, (laughs) and she who has had many sons pines away. There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Then Hannah breathes deeply, touches her lightning bolt belly, maybe, and sings with a smile, The Most High thunders from heaven. In the days to come, Hannah and Elkanah and Peninnah and the children will continue, of course, to make their annual pilgrimage. They will travel to worship Yahweh at the tabernacle in Shiloh. It will be the best part of Hannah's year. And with every visit, Hannah will bring little Samuel a new priestly robe, one she's made that's just his size. Samuel will run out to meet his mother, his hair bouncing as he races toward her so much longer each year than it was the last. He'll meet his little brothers, too, after a while, and sisters, five of them in all, Hannah and Elkanah's unlikely brood, gifts from a God who loves to give. In time, Hannah will find that the son who embraces her has grown a beard. Eventually, Samuel will find that the mother who embraces him has gone gray. An example like hers makes an impression, of course. Samuel will never forget the way his mother surrendered what she cherished to the God who she cherished most. He will walk with that God get to know that God, speak on his behalf, offer sacrifices for his people. And when Samuel breathes in that smell, he'll remember afresh the beauty of an ordinary life transformed into flaming worship.
Is it a strange thing to close the womb of a woman, only to open it again? Why would Yahweh do this? Perhaps he knew Hannah's heart. Perhaps he knew that with the right amount of longing, she'd resolve to offer her child to him. Perhaps he wanted to give her the pleasure of knowing that the leader he would use to revitalize the nation was not just Yahweh's gift to Hannah, but Hannah's gift to him. Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope the Redeemer, the Pilgrim, and the Baby Boy blessed you deeply. What a story. All right, I have big news to share. I mentioned last time that the very first Holy Ghost Stories live show is happening October 30th in Midland, Texas. Very excited about that. What I didn't tell you, though, was that the one and only Kendall Ramsour, who you all know about if you've listened to the show for long, is going to be joining me live and in person for that show to provide a gorgeous score on his cello. If you're able to make it, you will experience two incredible stories from the Old Testament that evening, along with even more I can't tell you about yet. If you are anywhere near Midland, you have to come. I know of folks driving in from Austin, others flying from a few states away, and I'm so very glad they are because I really believe this night is going to be a magical time that will usher you into to an unforgettable encounter with Yahweh. Now, tickets are available as of today. This is the very first day, and they are free thanks to our amazingly generous hosts at First Methodist Midland. But space is limited, so do not delay. You can get them right now at holyghoststories.org, holyghoststories.org. The link's in the show notes. I hope to see you there. Oh, and for all of you wonderful people who are a long way from Midland, and I know most of you are, take heart. Who knows what might happen in time a little closer to your neck of the woods. Before I sign off, I want to say thank you to those of you who've come on recently as patrons of the show and to those who've made incredibly generous contributions to season four. Thank you so very much. We are making some wonderful progress, and I think we're going to make this season happen together. Thank you, thank you, and praise God. If you want to pitch in a little or a lot, you can give a one-time tax-deductible gift or become a monthly patron at holyghoststories.org slash give. Holyghoststories.org slash give. Links, of course, in the show notes. Now, finally, a shout out to the Tours patrons doing some holy heavy lifting to make Holy Ghost Stories a reality. Dawn, Catherine, Jean-Paul, Tiffany, Jack, Rebecca, Sarabeth, Ginger, Luke, Derek, Debbie, Aaron, Stephanie, Vicenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Susan, Rick, Maddie, April, Eric, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, Kara, and Jamie. Thank you. You guys are just the best. Till next time.